know you're probably already in Romans. Let me give you something else to turn to real quickly as everyone gets settled back from taking the kids. Uh, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Place something there and then you can make your way back to Romans 11. And while you're doing that, thank you guys so much for praying for mom. Uh, she's doing much better physically, hoping she's going to be able to come home tomorrow. A couple more things that we've got to work out, a couple of things that she needs to do as well before she leaves. But uh, she's very sick when we called the ambulance, but she's, she's doing much better now. So thank you for that. Uh, I managed to jump ahead of you guys uh, that teach on Wednesday night. I jumped ahead of you on release time so I could be a week ahead and kind of watch out for any kind of difficult issues that may arise or put myself at least in a position uh, to help answer any questions. So I've taught already what you're going to teach Wednesday. And until we work out something formally, I'm just going to hang around for after service kind of over here. And if you teach on Wednesday nights and you come over there, we'll talk about the lesson uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes and answer any kind of questions. Uh, just in way of helping you get prepared for Wednesday night. Uh, you're doing a great job. I know Cody uh, photobombed a, a teacher this week and was very uh, pleased with how that went. And, I'm just really thankful for how it's going, but I want to continue to apply ourselves to doing a good job on Wednesday night, being faithful with the kids. So that being said, I'll be over here on this side right after service for a while, and we can work through Wednesday night if you want to. We can at least discuss it. But we come to uh, Romans this morning, or, or back to Romans. And you know, if you remember last week, we considered what all went wrong with Israel. I'm very thankful for that uh, service last week. Uh, very thankful for what the Lord did in my heart and very thankful for just how the word was so clear and where they went south in order for us to be able to pay attention. Guys, it's not as though that God has not gone to great lengths to prepare us for that day. It's just nothing but laziness if we don't take up the preparation that he's given us. But we come to a couple other things that we need to consider this week, and we need to consider all that God has done, as well as consider the proper response to those things that God has done. Now, I told you 9, 10, and 11 is, is, is Paul's effort, and it's more than an effort. It's a great accomplishment of him discussing salvation history. And you can see that all the way from Adam to Jesus, and then Jesus to today, God has done the two things that he set out to do from the very start. Number one, reveal his glory. And number two, accomplish his gospel. And you can see that clearly. And he, he brings that up in the book of Romans. From Adam to Jesus, I've done that. I, I've revealed to you my glory as the God who created you. And I've accomplished my gospel before your very eyes. So that without question, when you see Jesus, you go, of course, it's the Son of God who is going to be our Savior. God's done that right before our eyes. But when you consider the context in which He accomplished that, that's what I got overwhelmed with this week. He did all of that in the worst possible conditions that He could have ever done that. You see, the reason that it hit me this week is because I began having this conversation with God about Friday or Saturday, how my week hadn't gone like my week typically goes. I think I've done battle with everything this week, physically, mentally, spiritually. And so I show up Friday, and normally I'm, I'm working on this Monday, 
And I get a hold of this on Friday, way behind what normally circumstances, and I'm already whining to God about the position I'm in. And finally, late last night, I gave up because I was realizing I'm doing on Saturday night what I normally have done by Wednesday and Thursday. I'm going, I'm not going to abandon my process, but here I am on Saturday night doing stuff that I've got done by Wednesday. And so I finally say, you know, I've presented you with the worst possible position as a servant for you to work through this week. And then I remembered, I know, I'm speaking on God's behalf, I know, and I will accomplish my purposes anyway. Do you not realize what I accomplished through salvation history with absolutely zero help from anyone else? Rather than help, I had opposition from day one that Adam and Eve rebelled. I had no one on my side. I had no one in my defense. I had no strength or no support from anybody. And God says, I accomplished everything in spite of everything else. And I began to reflect on that, and it, it drove me to worship and praise because of what God has done in the context and in the consequences and in the circumstances in which he accomplished that. And then I just picked up my pen and began to write some things. And I don't want to try to do this from memory. I just, these are the things that I began to pen as I began to praise him. Out of the darkness, he has shined forth his light. Amidst sinfulness, he has manifested his holiness. In wickedness, he demonstrated his righteousness. Out of death, He brought forth life. In rebellion, He has proven His faithfulness. Amidst hatred, He has displayed His great love. Through crucifixion and death, He has given eternal life. In defeat, He has secured victory. Out of slavery, He has won freedom. And in spite of His Son being rejected by His own people, the Jews, He has called forth an alien people out of the Gentiles who has received His Son. Everything God has done, He has done in the worst possible of conditions. And we have all the more reasons to praise Him. Because He has not failed to reveal His glory. And He has not failed to accomplish His gospel. And He will not fail to carry us home and glorify us. And He will not fail to make His people enjoy Him forever and forever and forevermore. In spite of how your week's going to go this next week. He's amazing. He is absolutely amazing. And these are the things that we consider when we come up on one of the most profound, gut-punching, heart-wrenching calls to lay down our life as a living sacrifice to His glory. I mean, how can you not? When you reflect on the entirety of the book of Romans and you get to 12.1 and you hear the call, and it, this pitiful word, therefore, if you'll notice verse 1, this pitiful word, therefore I urge. That urge is like, could not be further from the need at the moment. I tell you, when I was thinking about Romans 12.1, and I've got a lot to say about 12.1, and we're not going to get done with 12.1 this morning, but when I think about the call in 12.1, it's, it's a call to arms. And I began to think about moments where there was a great call to arms and my mind went to the Lord of the Rings and there's, 
There's lots of movies and lots of instances where there are great call to arms. There's a couple in that movie where there's just tremendous call of arms where the commander or the king was just riding a horse before all the human beings about to go to war against all the wickedness and evil, right? And he gave them a speech. And it was basically, let's go die. I mean, there were tremendous moments in the movies, but this is the, one of the most tremendous moments that you're going to find in Scripture where God is using the Apostle Paul to call you to arms. It's time for war. And it's a great sacrifice because the thing that he calls you to is for you to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And he wants nothing less. And I realized when I read this moment, I started crying. I was like, here I am again. At 53, how many times I'm going to be brought before the Lord and he's going to ask me to die to myself. Knowing that I haven't yet. You're, it's like calling a child to do something and they, they just offer up the most smallest part or piece of what you've asked them to give or do. You know? It's like asking them for a, a bite of their dessert and they're shaking their head no and finally they'll reach down with their little bitty fingers and pinch off the smallest corner possible and they'll slide it forward for you. That's their sacrifice for you and God's like, how many times... Are you going to pinch off a piece of your life and come up here and lay it on an altar when I've called you to bring the whole sacrifice and lay yourself on the altar? How many times are you going to do that, Joey? So that's where we find ourselves at this morning, and, and it, it's difficult. Uh, it's a difficult call, but I need, I need the weight of it on your shoulders in order for you to understand the call that is before us this morning. It's time to stop pinching off a corner here and there. It's time to stop being satisfied with Sunday morning as the expression of your commitment to God. It's time to stop being satisfied with reading a devotion for five minutes or finding yourself in the Word of God once a week. It's time for all that to stop. When you hit 12-1, is an overwhelming call for the whole of you to come forth and lay down and give yourselves to God. And we're going to find out that's the things that we do with our hands. That's the things that we do with our feet. It's the things that we'll do with our eyes. It's the things that we'll do with our ears. It's the things that we'll do with our mouth. It's the things that we'll do with our heart. There is no part of you that God does not want fully committed to service and to worship for His glory. Not a single part. So that's where we're headed. I hope we can get there in, in two or three weeks. But when you look at Romans, and I'm going to give you three things, and the last thing I'll get back to Romans 12.1, but I, I can't pass up the, the previous two because there's such a need for us. But when you consider this, you consider the gospel in the first eight chapters, and you get to eight, it's just the mountaintop experience of the gospel, right? 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You get there and you get into 9, 10, and 11. You see the sovereignty of God and you realize if it hadn't been for His grace, you wouldn't even be here, right? And then you realize 
what God has done ought to elicit a response from me. I can't just sit there idly by. I can't offer up some sort of physical half-hearted effort. I've got to... I got to be different as I come to him and respond to him for all that he's done for me. And the first attitude needs to be an attitude of your heart. It needs to be an attitude of absolute. And I'm going to say a word you've never heard of before. You don't have it in your vocabulary. You don't understand it. You can't define it. You have not experienced it. The first thing that you ought to bring is an attitude of humility. And I said that to you in that way because that's the way I've said it to me this week. Where is that? Where did it go? We're called to have this attitude of heart that we don't even understand or comprehend. It's not a person that's soft-spoken. It's not a person that's introverted because this is what I found about people who are soft-spoken and introverted. They wrestle with pride on the inside like it's a hurricane and a tornado that's crashed together. They just do such a great job of keeping it all tucked up and it doesn't squirt out very often. The rest of us, like myself, it's just out there in the open. This guy struggles with pride. And he does it often. Listen, humility is something that you see in the Lord Jesus Christ without question. And I'll take you to Philippians 2 in just a second. But it's something that you're going to have to have, first and foremost, just coming to faith. Let's just start there. Just coming to faith. For you to really hear the gospel truly and understand that you're a sinner, that you deserve the wrath of God, that you are a child of wrath, that you would, God would be perfectly just to judge you and condemn you, for you to swallow that, that there's no one good, not even one, takes a great measure of genuine humility. And somehow, in the American church today, we've figured out a way to communicate the gospel to bypass humility, and it's not possible. One of the Puritans said, I mean, there is no salvation without genuine humility, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. For you to swallow Romans 3 takes a great measure of humility. And if you, if you think you've come to faith without swallowing Romans 3, you haven't really come to faith. You can't understand hope until you understand your hopelessness. And to be able to do that, you have to come to the end of yourself and understand your desperate need of a Savior. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to be out in the middle of the water and not continue to fight to save ourselves from drowning. We'll do it until we're at the bottom of the sea. But it takes a humble heart to realize in the belly of the fish that I'm in desperate need of someone to save me and rescue me because I can't do a thing. I can't do a thing about my circumstances. That takes humility. And we're all of this contrary nature to the attitude of the heart that we ought to have. We want to figure it out on our own. We want to do it on our own. I don't really need your wisdom or your thoughts or your opinions, and I sure don't need this. Right? That's the default attitude. 
But yet to come to understand this, you have to set all that aside. You have to set yourself aside and your thinking aside and hear what God says. And that requires humility. But it's not just humility in salvation. It's humility in, in order just to walk as a child of God. We're going to find out, and I'll show you in just a second, it takes profound humility to live in the context of the church. Just to be able to sit around you people <laughs> takes a whole lot of humility. And for you to even be able to put up with your pastor for two minutes takes a whole lot of humility on your part. And if you don't have it, well, I mean, we've got a lot of holes. It's hard. It's hard to live in the context of community of the Christian faith without humility. You won't last very long. If you came here for a blessing, if you came here for something for yourself, you came for the wrong reasons. I go back to a conversation that we've had many times. You're, you're supposed to tie an apron on when you walk through that door. Because you're here to serve. You're not here to be served. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about everyone else to His glory. And we have such a tendency to forget that. And then we get our feelings hurt and we don't come anymore. It requires humility. Let me show you the greatest demonstration of humility you'll ever find in all of creation. Go with me to Philippians 2. Go to the right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. You'll never read about, you'll never hear about, you'll never see a greater measure of humility than we see in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 5 in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in your Savior. You see that? Who although He existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped for Himself. But He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a slave or a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient all the way to the point of death, even the most cruelest form of death, the death on a cross." In other words, you can't find two things that are further separated in existence. The glory of God in which He had and the rightful death of the sinner, the, 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 the death that we deserve that He took upon Himself and died in, that, in our place. You, you can't find a greater expanse. I mean, you could drive from here to the sun 12 times. You still hadn't covered the distance that we find in Philippians 2. Who he was to who he became is immeasurable. It's immense. And what caused him to do that was his humility. We refer to it as the condescension of the Son. Oh boy, did he condescend. What are you talking about? That word doesn't even get close. He laid aside the robes of glory and he put on this. And this is pitiful compared to who he was and what he had, right? And he carried this all the way to Calvary and he died in my place for the stuff that I did and I've done. He hung there and died. And you're like, 
How is that even possible? Because of the great demonstration, not just of the love of God, but of the humility of God. You see, when he, we see His character, and you've got to understand, I tried to explain this to your kids Thursday in release time. When you see Jesus, you see God. In all of His fullness, the deity dwells, Paul says in Colossians. And we think about the love, but you've got to consider the great humility of God. It is absolutely profound. And here He calls us to have this same attitude in yourself. And so when we make our way back to Romans, I want you to go back there. I want you to notice Romans 11. And let me read again some of the things that Rob read to you this morning. Look at Romans eleven eighteen. Paul is so concerned about arrogance among the Gentiles. And he wants to make it clear to them, you've got no business with any sort of arrogance or pride. Notice verse 18. Do not be arrogant, he says to the Gentiles toward the branches in reference to the Jews. But if you're arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you, meaning in reference to Christ. He's giving an olive tree illustration. You will say then the branches or the Jews were broken off so that I, Gentiles, might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith don't be conceited, but be fearful. In other words, he says, all right, let's deal with your arrogance. Number one, you, you stand by your faith. And that's supposed to knock you down a notch or two. Because if we stand by our faith, we're standing upon the accomplishments of Christ. We're standing upon the merits of Christ. You're not here based on your own merits. You're not here based on your own work. You're not here because of your accomplishments. You're here because of Jesus. And Jesus alone, that's what he means when he says, hey, you're standing by your faith. Don't act like you're standing here because of something you've done. And see, that's why I don't like the typical Southern Baptist gospel. He's done all he's going to do. Now the rest is up to you. And I'm like, oh man, you're missing it by a mile. No, you're here because of everything Jesus has done and because of absolutely... It's not just you haven't done anything. You've done everything in the wrong direction. That's what he means when he says, Hey, dude, you stand by your faith. You're standing on His shoulders, not yours. And so don't be conceited. The best kind of attitude you ought to have is fear. In other words, he's saying, you think about your salvation, buddy. And when you do, humility ought to just well up in your heart and spill out of your eyes. And if that's what happens when you consider your salvation, then you really do understand the gospel. But if you can think about your salvation, and you can think about this good news that God has given you, and you can think about the fact that the gospel came to Macedonia, to the most rural place on the planet. And there's a few thousand people groups that the gospel has yet to come to. And yet you sit here in the midst of good news. Why are you not crying right now? There's nothing about this gospel that would cause pride. Not a thing. 
if it's preached right and understood. And I even carry you into the doctrines of grace, which not everybody likes. But the reason that we have the doctrines of grace in 9, 10, and 11 is so to make it absolutely sure that there wouldn't even be the slightest hint of pride that wells up in your heart. Now listen, if you hold to the doctrines of grace and don't weep over your salvation, you don't really understand the doctrines of grace. Because that's why they're here. So if you're saved and you understand that it was by grace and grace alone, you see, for me to be arrogant or prideful is absolutely contradictory to what God has done for me. You know? So the first thing that he comes to is, is when we consider this gospel, he says, hey, don't, don't you dare be arrogant. Don't you dare be filled with pride. You ought to walk around as a lowly people absolutely filled with humility. And it's not just humility toward God. Look down in verse 25. Again, he comes to this. He says, I don't want you to be aware, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed. I want you to understand this so that what? You won't be wise in your own estimation. I want you to understand 9, 10, and 11. I want you to understand what I've done. That way you won't walk around with your chest stuck out. But i got to carry you from humility as a response to God to humility as a response to a people so you'll know how to live in the context of the church. Look in chapter 12, verse 3. Humility never leaves all of these exhortations. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we are many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In other words, again, just to function in the context of this body, stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. Which means if you were, you wouldn't be so easily offended. Paige and I got frustrated this week with ourselves because we got some lost friends that are so close to their kids. Ridiculously close. We watch them spend every weekend together. And yet here we are sometimes struggling in relationship with our own kids. How? How is that? We're the ones that are not to think too highly of ourselves. We're the ones that know to walk around in humility. We're the ones that know about grace. They don't. How can this be? Why are we not the ones that everyone admires about the closeness of our family and our kids? Why is that? And it's because of these things. You just think too highly of yourself. You're just so easily hurt and disappointed and offended. You just can't hang around. Christians, wake up. We can't be like that. You're getting the sermon that I've given to myself all week, by the way. 
This is the attitude that we need to have toward God. Absolute humility because he's setting you up for the sacrifice, right? So you're absolutely humble toward God, but you're also absolutely humble in the context of the body. Look at verse 16. He'll go on. Be of the same mind one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the, the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Here he goes again. What, you, you think you can't live among a particular people? You think you can't be friends with a particular people? You think you can't relate with a particular? You think they got to be like you before you can be close to them? What's wrong with you? Problem's not with them. Problem is you. Stop being wise in your own estimation. Stop being so haughty. Look at 15.2. He's not going to stop there. Over 15.2, he says, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, look at Jesus he didn't come around here trying to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the example before you. In other words, as he works out the gospel in our lives, the attitude that he keeps coming back to time and time again is one of absolute humility. Absolute humility. We don't think much of ourselves. We don't think little of ourselves. Don't go there. We don't want that either. We just don't think of ourselves. That was Christ. He didn't hold on to who He was. He didn't demean who He was. We, we never see the Lord Jesus criticize Himself. We never see Him walk around going, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. He didn't do that either. He just didn't talk about himself because it wasn't about himself. And when we truly get this, we will forget ourselves because we will be too busy serving our king and serving his servants, the children of God. So the first thing that we present with as we understand Romans is with a heart of humility. But the second thing that we present to God is a mouth filled with praise. Look at Romans 11 again. Let me read to you verses 33 through 36. Watch Paul's mouth light up. Oh, the depth of the riches and, if you've got both, it's wrong. I'll explain in a minute. Oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him? And then watch this, because we've really got to understand this statement. For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now when we went through worship, I told you, the most important, significant, greatest instrument that God ever made and created was your mouth. And when you think about all the needless things your mouth will say next week, and when you think about all the godless things your mouth will say next week, it ought to strike you that your mouth was built and created for praise. 
When you get to this point in Romans, your heart ought to be so filled and your mouth ought to be so full that you just can't help yourself but give glory to God. For what? For everything. That's what he's doing. Man, when I look at what when I look at Romans 1 and see who we were, and I get to Romans 3 and find out that we're absolutely hopeless, and then hope starts coming around the corner halfway through 3, and hope builds all the way through 8 until it's just bubbling over with hope. And then I get in 9, 10, and 11, and I realize that I'm here by the sovereignty of God. The only thing that I can do is sing His praises. Why is that such a struggle for us? That's something we've got to deal with. That's something we've got to work on. We've got to work on the point where every time we open our mouth, people are going, oh, no, here he goes again about Jesus. And that's just fine. Because when it's the greatest thing in your life, it ought to be the most common thing in your mouth. Because you just can't get over what Jesus has done. I just can't get over what Jesus has done for me. That's all you talk about. Is there anything else going on in your life? Well, yeah, there's other things. Well, you know, I've got to work with you, and, and I do my best to, to build my relationship with my spouse with you, and I, I wrestle with my kids with you, and I, you know, I've got this. I've I got all that that you've got. But every time I open my mouth, I just want to talk about the most important, significant thing in my life, and that's what Jesus has done for me. That's just what I want to talk about. And the moment that we do that is the moment that our lives really begin to change. But I want you to understand what has motivated Paul to say these things. Because that's very important. Not just what he said, but how we got here. And you know how he got here? By understanding what God has done. You see how important this Bible is before you? You have to understand it so you'll have the right reasons to praise Him. And I go back to that song that I fuss so much about. Oh my goodness. There's nothing worse, I don't know, than singing bad theology when you've got such good theology in front of you to understand and worship God for. Oh, the depths. And I said both. If you got NAS, it's got the word both. But if you got ESV, it's got the word and, I believe. But when he says riches and wisdom and knowledge, riches is more than likely a reference to the riches of his mercy. Watch this. Look back up in verse 30, 1130. Now watch what he does here. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you've been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. Skip down in verse 12, <clears throat> 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So when you go back in the middle of all that, and you say, oh, the depth of the riches. He's not talking about wealth. He's talking about the richness of the mercy of God. It's overwhelming by this point. And so I think that's the first thing he's driving. Oh, the depth of the mercy of God. How do you measure that? How do you comprehend that? Everywhere I look, I see the mercies of God. And you remember what mercy had. Brother Jimmy always 
Every time we have a conversation, I mention mercy or grace. He'll come in. Now, now mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve. I'm like, you're spot on, man. You get it. You remember it. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Mercy is when we deserve the judgment of God and the wrath of God, but we find ourselves up under the mercy of God. And you go, how did I get here? The depth of His mercies. Oh, the depth of the mercies. And then he goes on to demonstrate how God has brought us the gospel. And you're like, oh, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is this? How incomprehensible is this? Oh, from, and then he goes on in verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? See, when you understand the word of God, you're absolutely loaded for the praise of God. But until you understand the word of God, what are you going to sing about? Until you understand what he's done, what are you going to sing about? You? And if you'll pay attention to worship songs today, that's exactly what you're singing about. You're singing about you. Because you don't know about the work of God and you don't know about the word of God and you don't know about the character of God. So you got to sing about you. Pay attention to the words when you're singing. I don't care if you're on Caleb. That's a perfect place. You see how many of those songs are about you. And if they mention God, it's in the context of what he's going to do for you. It's all about you. But it's not that way for Paul. I mean, notice again, verse 36, from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul didn't mention about his problems. Paul's not talking about his depression. Paul's not worried about his kids. Paul's not talking about his marriage. Paul's not talking about persecution. Paul's not talking about any of that stuff. Paul's just talking about God. Because he understands what God has done. And he's like, y'all, it's, it's amazing. I'm trying to tell you, it's absolutely amazing. I just got to pause and praise him. And he does that. I told you guys, I know I told you guys that before, but that, saying that makes me think about the time I went to South Georgia. And I don't even remember. I was like right on the Florida line. And they wanted me to come talk to them. And I wound up doing the whole book of Colossians. It took me six hours. We're not going to go that long this morning. But I'm like two hours into it, and I had seven different denominations with me. And one of them was a church of God. And right in the middle of the sentence, he shouted out, You're going to have to stop for a minute because I've got to praise him. And I said, Go ahead, brother. And he went to shouting. And while he was shouting, I was like, Well, let's just sing a song. And one of them started up with a song. So he had seven different denominations and a guy that's very confused about what denomination he belongs to, just all started singing because we just need to stop and praise him. That's exactly what Paul does here in Romans 11. I just got to praise him right now. Right? I see what he's done, and I'm going to praise him. So there's your heart. There's your mouth. But then we come to this business in Romans 12, and we got to do something about your life. Heart of humility a mouth of praise, but we've got to do something with your life. 
And you need to understand, we're not going to get, get we're not going to finish this this morning. I have no intent. I don't even want to. I want to be in a much better position as I prepare for Romans 12 than I have been the past couple of weeks. But this is the very hinge of the whole book. If it was a door swinging on a hinge, it's Romans 12. Here's your hinge. And to put it, you know, I guess the way we would normally put it, the indicatives, all the truths have become the imperatives or all the instruction. The theological is about to become the practical. And let me say this. If what you think don't change your life, it hasn't done you a bit of good. If your theology doesn't change your practice, it's philosophy, it's not theology. It's just stuff in your head. And let me tell you something. I do not want this church to be a church that's got their heads full, but their hands aren't full. We've got to be a people that move from our theology into our practice. And you've got to understand Romans 12 to do that. So there's few times in the last almost 10 years now that we've run across a more important passage than Romans 12, 1 and 2. And, well, 1 and 2. So I'm going to spend a few weeks here because of the profound importance. But in no way, shape, or form do I want you to think we've left the gospel. Don't dare think of Romans as 1 through 11 is the gospel and 12 on to the end of the book is something else because we'll never get away from the gospel. It's the gospel that saves and it's the gospel that sanctifies. In other words, when you're struggling in your sanctification, you're forgetting the gospel. When you're wrestling with sin and you're giving in to sin, you're forgetting the gospel because we never graduate beyond the gospel. So don't think for an instance we're doing something different because God is not. You see, the gospel is best defined, I think, in Colossians as Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it's Christ in you that justifies you. And what I mean by that, it's Christ in you where God looks at you and just makes this declaration of absolute innocence and righteousness. Justification is a declaration. Oh, you're guilty. And you didn't bring anything into the courtroom to which the judge would forgive you. That's not justification. You brought your guilt and shame into the courtroom. God the Father looks at the work of God the Son and He makes this declaration, not guilty. That's the gospel and that's justification. But when we get into sanctification, it's still Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the power of Christ and the person of Christ that dwells in you through the gospel that begins to manifest Himself out in your life. It's not you, so don't beat you up. You're still bringing nothing to the table in this equation, okay? The gospel that saves you is the gospel that changes you. Jot down Colossians 1.6. I won't go there. But if you have the word among, just mark through it. The ESV does. The word is in because the gospel that saves you is still the gospel that works in you. Colossians 1.6. It's still changing you. Now, I want you to see this. So look at, in Romans 12. Look at the end of verse 1, the last phrase, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
In other words, I spent six weeks trying to teach you about worship. Paul's going to do it in two verses. And he's going to do it in a much better way. If you understand Romans 12, 1 and 2, you'll, you'll understand worship. And if you don't understand Romans 12, 1 and 2, you will not understand worship. If you'll notice there in the NAS, and I'm sure the ESV, I think every translation really struggles. You've got the word spiritual service. Well, actually the word spiritual. And everybody struggles with trying to translate the word spiritual. But you have to understand in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul's using the backdrop of the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrificial systems to help us understand the New Testament sacrifice. And I think the best translation of the word spiritual is actually not spiritual. It's the word true. In other words, Paul says, let's, let's just talk about worship. Let's talk about what is truly worship. Now, we've changed a lot of things, right? Uh, and, I, and I think they're good. We're real careful around here about the songs that we sing. We're making sure that they're consistent with the teachings of Scripture. I love the repentance part that, 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 that starts us off. But you've got to understand, we didn't make worship true when we did that. I wish I could. I wish that we could, you know, Jeremy does this, and it's the most helpful thing on the planet uh, as far as worship goes. He's given us all this order of service, and we all know the things that we're supposed to do. I love all the prayer that we do. I love how we've got singing with confession and singing with reading the scriptures, and we're going to close with singing. I love all that, but we're still not making worship true. Do you know what? what God considers acceptable, what God considers true worship. Well, look at verse 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is acceptable to God. This is your spiritual or this is true worship. In other words, you can lift your hands. You can have the smoke. You can turn the lights out. You can know the words and the words be cool. They can be played with six different instruments, but none of that has made worship true at all. It's made it entertaining. It's made it enlivening, but it hasn't made it true. You're the only ones that can make it true. And for you to worship God truly is for you to die to yourself and lay your life before him as a sacrifice to his glory. And that's why we have the word spiritual. Because you think, well, that does have something to do with the inside. Absolutely, it has something to do with the inside. It includes that, but that's not all of that. And so the best way to capture the whole thought of what Paul's trying to do here is he's going, dude, this is true worship. And if you remember back in Psalm 50, they were making the sacrifices. God was mad. They were reciting the word of God. God was mad. And the reason that God was angry at them in Psalms 50 in regard to their worship is because nothing was going on with their heart and their life. It wasn't making a difference. And so in a reflection of Old Testament worship that was all external, Paul brings us into the New Testament worship where, yes, it's all internal, but it's also all of you. It's not a part of you. It's all of you. Now is a great time for you to begin reflecting on the things that you've yet to lay on the altar of worship in sacrifice to God. What is that? I know what mine is. And I really go through that. I don't want to do it. 
out. And I told you when I started this, I've been at this place. I've been at the place that I am right now so many times in my life. I remember when the Lord called me to ministry. I think I was 23. And y'all, I just graduated college. I was making money hand over fist. I just went and brought, I wrote a check for a brand new Mustang out of the showroom. Drove it home. I did not want to go into ministry. And I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And God was like, you know what I want. And I remember, you know, in the church I was in, 20, walked down the altar. And I began to cry out to God, still fighting him tooth and nail. You know, that's what causes the tears. Still fighting him tooth and nail about doing this thing. And I started hurt hearing knees dropping beside me. And I just had to look, so I turned around and looked, and every single one of the youth that the pastor had asked me to be a leader of, every single one of them had gotten up in the church, and they were all beside me in prayer. And there was about 50 kids on the floor, all next to me, because I was fighting with God over this issue. When you're going to lay down your life on the altar? And I came to it again when I had my own business, doing very well, and God calls us to the mission field. And I had a way to walk away from all that. And I found myself there again. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. Until finally I make a big hairy deal out of it. Fighting him tooth and nail. And then finally I lay my life up on the altar and I walk away from that. And I still find myself there this morning. Understanding, Joey, you, you talk a lot about worship, but God's still waiting on you to worship. You might have fixed the songs and fixed the forms and fixed the functions and all that, but he's still waiting on you to worship. And so you go through this thing in your life. Okay, do you need this? Do you need that? Do you want this? Do you want that? Do you want all that? How much of that? How much of this? I'm just opening up my mind to y'all. That's how I do and you got to get to the place, and please don't be like your kids. Don't get to the place where they peach off enough of the little sweet to satisfy their hearts and think, well, I finally shared with mom and dad. Because if you pinch off that amount, you'll be pinching for the rest of your life, and you'll never be satisfied with your worship or your sacrifice. Let's stop pinching. And let's just side the whole plate. And let God have with, have with her life. And wherever he calls you or whatever he calls you or whatever you need to stop or whatever you need to start or whatever you need to give up or whatever you need to take hold of, just do that. Just do that. And what's my motivation here, Joey, for doing this? Well, look back at Romans 12. He'll tell you the motivations. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. How much mercy do you want before you sacrifice your life to him? How much more mercy is it going to take? Again, this is a question I asked myself this week. How many more mercies before you lay down? Let's pray.